When I was growing up, I was taught that other than us, no other species was interested in or capable of making tools. Actually, I think it was even stated a little bit worse than that. I remember being told that man is the tool maker. That this supposedly distinguishing feature was totally false had actually been figured out before I was born. The word just hadn't traveled to the science classroom at my school. Maybe because it was a woman who discovered it. That was Jane Goodall, who watched the chimpanzees in Gombe use tools in at least nine different ways. They used objects to help them drink and eat and clean and to fetch things that were out of reach. I'm mystified, though, by why we humans always seem to have this need to set ourselves apart from the rest of nature, which is why I so gravitated to the story that I read in the news about a scientist in Australia who had discovered that honeybees are able to do mathematics and that honeybees have a concept of zero. Welcome to The Shape of the World. I'm Jill Riddell. I'm Dr. Scarlett Howard from Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia, and I work on honeybees and native Australian bees on things like pollination, cognition, vision, neurobiology, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Welcome, Scarlett. I'm so happy to talk with you about your work, especially on this finding that bees can understand the concept of zero. I read about this first in the New York Times and was really captivated by the idea. We have a couple of honeybee hives in our side yard at our house, and so I've done kind of avocational reading about all the things that bees know and ways they communicate and so forth and found the findings of your research to be very exciting. I'm curious first to find out how you came to be interested in honeybees as an organism to study. I've always been interested in animals. And during my university undergraduate degree, I volunteered on a number of projects working on research work with black swans, tawny dragons, Bula fish and a bunch of other animals, and I really enjoyed the work. Then I heard about a master's research project, which was on honeybees. Were you already interested in honeybees at that point? I was terrified of honeybees. I chose the project because I thought it sounded so interesting. It was having a look at how honeybees perceive size and how they could learn relative rules like larger than or smaller than. I sort of thought to myself, Honeybees can't learn things. I, I'd never heard anything like this before. And so I thought, I have to see this for myself. And so I did my master's in bee studies, I guess. I worked on the learning of bees. And then I decided to go on and do a PhD on the numerical ability of honeybees. And what gave you the idea that mathematics might also be within their cognitive abilities? A couple of studies had shown that honeybees were able to count landmarks on their way to a food source. And so that could be really important in an environment where honeybees need to navigate to find a really good food source. And once they find it, they want to know how to get back there. And there was also another study that showed number generalization in bees, which is basically bees could see two blue circles fly through a tunnel and then choose two blue stars as opposed to three blue stars. So they could match numbers. Seeing that bees were able to do a few of these more basic things, I was really interested in, in applying some of the more advanced techniques that had been developed since those studies were published and seeing if we could push their numerical ability a bit more. And we were able to. Now, I know you want to hear about how Scarlett Howard and her colleagues could be certain that honeybees understand zero. I did too. The explanation is fascinating and it's also complex. So the most detailed information about it is on our website. I am going to explain the experiment to you in a minute by telling you a story. First, though, I want to take a sideways leap from thinking about bees into thinking about this concept of nothingness. 
This episode is really a story of two things, honeybees and zero. And it's about how two subjects that would seem to have little in common beautifully intersect. Zero is a numeral that represents a total absence of anything. Honestly, I find the use of zero as a number to be a bit humorous and ironic. It's really sly when you think about it. The idea of assigning a symbol that makes nothingness as mathematically valuable as any other numeral. If you're going to perform a calculation, zero is as essential to it as a one might be, or a two, or a seven. And yet zero isn't anything like those other numbers. Every other number measures somethingness, while zero indicates the existence of nothingness. Zero is the antithesis of a number. Anyway, to better understand all this and to comprehend why zero is quite special and why a rather obscure finding that honeybees understand zero found its way into mainstream media, I decided to bring in a mathematician. And while this is definitely a sidebar to our core story about Scarlett Howard, her research, her life, her honeybees, it's worth the dive that we're about to take. And who better to help us than someone who spends large parts of every single day trying to explain things about math that are hard to grasp? I called up a man who teaches math to high school students. And, full disclosure, he was once my daughter's teacher. My name is Farouk Khan. I'm a mathematics teacher at the University of Chicago Laboratory Schools, and um, currently I'm the chair of the department there. In a mathematical sense, how is zero different from other numerals? And it's a very abstract idea when you think about it. In Western mathematics, which really, in a serious way, begins with the Greeks, there was no idea of place value. It seems puzzling that they could compute, but they had these esoteric ways of computing, but they didn't really understand the importance of having a placeholder for nothing. So, like, if I have two pounds and no shillings and a few pence, I need to keep a place open for the shillings. Even when there aren't any. Yes. And that, when you sit and think about it, is a huge, huge, huge leap. Zero allows us to make quicker calculations, and it helps us form huge numbers without having to invent new numerals to do so. We can use three and a zero to represent 30, for example, or three and two zeros to represent 300. What can you tell us about the role of zero apart from computation? Well, set theory changed the language that we use for mathematics. It gave us the means to talk meaningfully about things like infinite sets. You know, what is infinity? That infinity comes in flavors and strengths. They're not all, not everything is the same. And it is now so deeply embedded in our culture, and our language, that we don't even think about it. You've probably used set theory. When you think of, you know, all the people who live in Chicago and all the people who drive Chevrolets, so, well, you draw two blobs and you look at the intersection. Well, that's, those are Venn diagrams, and those were discovered to illustrate set theoretical facts. Well, what is central in set theory? This mysterious idea of the empty set has nothing in it. Well, why do you need that? Well, because you can't help it. You have two things that have nothing in common. How do you describe it? Well, their intersection is empty. There is this thing. But once you bring this thing into being, it now has a life of its own. Because our logic is binary, something is true or false, and if it is not false, it must be true, you come upon this really sort of mystical-sounding idea that the empty set 
is the subset of every set. This is what, at this level of abstraction, the empty set, which is a stand-in for zero, becomes. So is it fair to say that counting can survive without zero because the ancient Greeks managed to do it without zero and managed to make calculations without zero. But this level of abstraction that's embedded in calculus and the way our world functions today absolutely requires zero. Zero is pivotal to the existence of many of these things. Yes, that's very, very true. But it was about the time of the Renaissance that people who had been traveling in the East brought back this idea of, well, what is the importance of zero in that respect? It's, it's computation. And there was this book called the Liber Abaci, which was the book of the Abacus, in which I think is the first account in the West of using place values to compute instead of the horrid Roman numerals. But it obviously has revolutionized everything we do, because while the Greeks were able to manage without it, in an abstract sense, without zero and place values, the ability to compute quickly has brought about tremendous progress because you can generate, if nothing else, examples very, very quickly numerically. With animals, I can imagine why there would be reasons for species other than us to indicate amounts, to be able to communicate about how much of something there might be, maybe the number of bananas or, I don't know, the number of wolves in a wolf pack. But I'm starting to see why the demonstration of an understanding of zero pushes an animal species to a whole new level. Well, yes. I mean, I think that need comes first. And then eventually, once we fulfill our need, then comes abstraction. And this is a, a cultural pattern that you see all across. And if you look at the development of mathematics in various parts of the world, you see this. And one of the most striking examples of this is the United States. Until about, I would say, 1890, there was not much mathematics to speak of here. Well, why is that? Because people were just too busy trying to survive. And at the World Exposition in Chicago in 1893, the University of Chicago, which was a brand new institution at the time, decided to put forth a number of deep results, which sort of brought them to everyone's attention in the world. And so the first school of mathematics was established right here in Hyde Park uh, in the United States. And many of the first generation of American mathematicians were trained here. Can I ask you a question of how you got interested in mathematics? How did you come to this? <sighs> um, when I was a boy, I went to a boarding school and I had lots of leisure. And when I look at my students, they're so, they're harried all the time. And when I was about 12 or 13, there was a, we got a new teacher. He was also our housemaster. And he was working on his PhD dissertation. And he came and said all these shocking things to us about mathematics. And he made it seem like something unimaginably beautiful. Like he talked to me about complex analysis. He said, well, it's like the Garden of Eden. So, so rich, so beautiful. And so he would assign us these problems, and I was one of these strange children who would spend a whole Sunday afternoon just working on these. And I found that if I worked on them long enough, it made my face very hot. And it made me kind of walk as if in a trance. And I liked that feeling. Of course, the world in which I grew up, you had to do something socially useful, so I became an engineer. 
but it was like a bad marriage. I mean, I just couldn't do it. Um, and eventually, at some point, I said enough, and I switched to mathematics. And uh, I'm happy. For me, zero is tied in with this notion of abstraction. And I think the way we think of zero is really, really far removed from the way our forebears did. And it's really a reflection of where we are culturally and socially. Do you find that there's anything comical or amusing about zero? Well, yes. I mean, I think that um, you think this is nothing, but then you use nothing to build your numbers completely. It all begins with nothing. Farooq, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed stepping down into that plunge pool of nothingness with me and Farooq Khan, and that you can feel all the zero that's inside you. I'm going to pull Dr. Scarlett Howard, the biologist, back in with us in just a minute. But before we do, let's visit her experiment and really understand its ins and outs. Let's start with imagining you are a honeybee. You live with all your sisters in a hive. Adjacent to where you live, this really cool scientist named Scarlett Howard has set up an interesting thingamajig. Inside of it are two vessels. One is full of the stuff called tonic water. Human beings, which is what Scarlet is, are happy to drink tonic water. They find its taste pleasant, especially when a substance called gin is mixed in with the tonic water. But you and your bee sisters find tonic water, ugh, ugh, not good at all. Now, also inside this thingamajig Scarlet made is a second vessel. This one contains sugar water. Sugar water is your total favorite food in the whole world. Yum. What Scarlet has so graciously poured for you is a substance similar to flower nectar. Normally, you have to spend all day looking around for sugar water, and here it is, free for the taking. Well, almost. First, you, little worker bee, must figure out how to reach the sugar water and how to avoid that nasty-tasting, quinine-laden tonic water. Fortunately, the very nice Scarlett Howard has created a method that will guide you to find the drink you want and avoid the one you hate. All you have to do to get there, and to be able to guess right 100% of the time, is a little bit of math. I know. I know what you're thinking. What the heck? I'm three weeks old. Are you kidding? Human children take years to learn this stuff. Have you seen the size of my brain now that I'm a worker bee? Calm down, little bee, you've got this. All your sisters are doing it, and you definitely can too. And no, you cannot learn it from them because Scarlet has devised ways to make sure that you really are the individual who is performing the mathematical calculation and not just repeating what one of your sisters did and imitating it, or you're not laying down a scent trail to help you cheat for the next time when you come. She has ways of making sure you're not taking any illegal shortcuts. Devising this experiment took a lot of time and intelligence on the part of Scarlett and her colleagues to make sure that you, this particular individual B, really are the one who's doing the math. Okay, so now you're inside this thing that Scarlett made. 
Scarlett and her helpers are kind folks who are going to take their time and they're not going to rush you. First, they give you a chance to get adjusted to the apparatus, to their experiment. And if you turn out to be one of the individual bees who likes being in it and keeps her turning, they'll make the investment in teaching you their game of how to find the sugar water. They've devised a way of identifying you and your sisters as individuals so that they'll know whether you're a brand new bee or one that's midway through the process of learning. When a bee first shows up, they reward her for simple things like being able to just hang on to the platform. But let's say that you're a midway bee. You've been here enough times to know what's what. And though Scarlet will teach you any number of different things, we're going to stick now for this explanation with the zero experiment. To do that, you've already picked up on the basics as a bee. Each time you enter what's called a Y maze, which is a covered box that's shaped like the letter Y, and at the tip of each arm of the Y is a vessel. One side has the sugar water, the other has the tonic water. You enter at the base of the Y, and you're going to encounter a square card that's as long and wide as a human being's pinky finger, so not that big. On the card are shapes and colors, which, because you're so smart, you've learned is asking you a mathematical question. And as you approach the place where the corridor divides into the two upper branches of the Y shape, there will be a card marking each entrance. One card represents the correct answer, which leads to sugar water. The other card is incorrect and leads to the horror that is tonic water. One of the things Scarlett has already taught you is the mathematical concepts of greater than and lesser than. This current maze that you're in is set up to test whether you can now grasp zero. So if you want the sugar water, and you know you do, your job each time is to choose the corridor marked by the card that has the lowest number on it. All right, let's talk through the rest of this, the zero component with Scarlet. So if we're training to a less than rule and we show a B two on one card, three on the other card, we want them to go to two. So then they're rewarded for choosing the card that had the smaller number of symbols on it. Is that correct? Yeah, lesser versus greater. Bs would be trained to go to the smaller number, which was shown, and we were always changing the number throughout the experiment. They had to learn the concept of less than or greater than. So if I'm a B and I've learned that if there's a four and a three, I ought to go to the three. And then if there's a three and a two, that I ought to go to the two because it's less than three. And then there's a two and a one, and I go to the one because it's less than two. So to test zero, would I show up and there would be one card that had a one on it and one that had nothing? Exactly right. Even though zero was completely unfamiliar to them, they still chose zero if they were trained to lesser than. So I'm that B and I see a totally blank card. And I understand that as representing the absence of a number. There's a presence of spots on another card. And I recognize that absence is not just being a random thing that's been thrown in that's completely different, but part of that continuum. Yeah, that's correct. So let's talk a little bit about intelligence and what we mean by intelligence. Intelligence is such a vague word. I understand sort of the biological norm is that intelligent animals tend to be animals whose brains are large and proportionate to their body size, and they tend to be longer to live so that they have time to grow smarter and to take advantage of that ability. How do bees stack up in that? Do bees 
have exceptional brains or are they pretty much like the brains of other insects? I wouldn't say bees have exceptional brains. I have my own theory. <laughs> um, I'd love to know it. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I believe that we've been able to show that bees can do really interesting and seemingly complex tasks, it's bees with their lifestyle, they are visiting between one and 2,000 flowers a day. And it's important that they remember exactly where those flowers are. The foragers do a dance to the other foragers to say, there is a really great patch of food, patch of flowers over this direction. And to be able to remember all of that, plus the color, the scent, the shape of the flower and the navigation towards it every time, that involves a lot of learning. They're really transferring their learning skills from learning flower traits and learning navigation into learning whatever task we give them. I do find it fascinating This little tiny organism with a little tiny nervous system is capable of doing such stupendous feats. Yeah, their brain is about the size of a sesame seed, and yet they're still able to do these really complex tasks. So we refer to bees and ants as social insects, meaning they they live in these colonies. But are they social learners? Do they learn from one another? There have been some studies showing that honeybees can do social learning. La Shitka's work has shown that they're able to learn string pulling off each other, which is we're starting to touch on tool use there in bees, and then they're teaching it to each other, and it's actually going past generations. So I think there was something like a few bees learnt the original task of string pulling, and those original bees that had learnt it and passed it on died, but the skill kept going through the hive, which was really quite interesting. So it's like generational knowledge almost. I have a question about the native bees and gender. So when we see honeybees, all the honeybees that we see out in the world are all female. Is that true with other kinds of bees as well? So if we're seeing a bee on a flower or a bee around a bush or just uh, any of the native bees, are we seeing almost exclusively female bees out in our environment? Not necessarily. Bees you see on flowers could be male or female. If you see them going into nests, they are females. And females are the ones which will collect the pollen as well. So if you see them covered in pollen, see them returning to nest, you can be pretty sure that they're female. What I've observed personally is the bees mating on flowers. So a female might land to collect some pollen. A male will come and mate with her on the flower. So yeah, with the native bees, it it could be males or females. And you have to look a bit closer to work out which one they are. Unless they're mating, then you know which is which. Did you have early experiences with nature and before you went to university, were you one of those lucky people who already knew what you wanted to do? What was your path like to getting to where you are now? When I was younger, I just really loved animals and I really loved nature. Did you grow up in a city or were you out in the country? No, I grew up in the city. I did spend a fair bit of time in my teenage years in the country because I did ride horses. I had this love for animals, love for science, and I got to university and didn't do very well. I do very badly in exams, in stressful situations like that. Basically, yeah, I did fail a few subjects. I didn't really know where I was heading. Now I can finally talk about it. I think it's important to acknowledge that you don't have to be great at taking exams. You don't have to be really, really smart. I think anyone can do research. Anyone can be a scientist. You just need a little bit of perseverance and motivation. I worked all through high school and all through university to support myself. When I finally got to the point where assessments were more writing research papers or talking about, you know, doing research rather than, you know, trying to memorize exam questions and all of that. I did so much better and it gets easier. But yeah, the first part was definitely rough. 
Yeah, I love that story. That's a great story to tell because I think that's so important for people to hear because oftentimes people have scientists on sort of an elevated plane that feels like someplace they can't get. Is Australia a place that's friendly in science to girls and women? As a woman in science, there definitely has been some harder times, but I'm surrounded by really great teams of people. Australia is making great strides towards being more inclusive in science, um, having more diversity in science. I have some friends who who do some really good work with women and girls in science and trying to expand the diversity as well. And I myself try and go out there and communicate science to the public because I think everyone, people get more excited about it and they can see what the benefits are as well. So, so many people now know about the plight of pollinators and how important bees are, you know, the one in three mouthfuls that they provide to us and all the different fruits and vegetables they provide. Is that right? One in three of the mouthfuls of food we eat are pollinated by bees? Yeah, that's correct. So one in three mouthfuls pollinated by bees. Lots of people now are starting to understand that. And that's all due to science communication. So you've been has spent this life steeped in the things you're studying, steeped in the scientific method. What do you see in the world that you're surprised that other people don't see? Something surprising after having been in my research for all these years would be the way I look at the everyday insects when I'm on a walk or even in my house and I see some insects and uh, previously I would have been like, oh, can someone take that outside, please? And now if I'm walking by and I see a bee on a flower, I, I literally stop, I watch it, I take pictures. My friends and family now, they'll send me pictures of bees they see. They'll be like, I saw a bee and I thought of you and they'll just send me a picture of a bee. So I think my passion for bee research and pollination has extended to the people around me. Well, it is true that most of us have a kind of blindness to small things. And there's even a term for it, of plant bias. We just sort of see green and don't really see individual plants. I can see where that would really feel like it opens up another world that coexists with the world we're in all the time, but now you have the eyes to see it. The research definitely has opened up my mind to seeing these worlds that I previously wouldn't have known existed. And throughout the pandemic, um, there was a few places I was still able to go around my house. Melbourne was in very, very strict lockdown. And at one point we weren't allowed to travel more than five kilometres away. There was a few places I was still able to go around my house. What I did find was some nests of native bees and I was completely amazed, completely entranced, just watched them coming in and out of their nests. I'm still learning so much even after working with bees for seven or eight years. So for me, that's really exciting. Do you have a life philosophy or a motto or a tenet or anything that you use to help keep you going? Honestly, I don't. I do do struggle a lot with stress. Um... My my doctor once told me I'd probably be dead by the time I was 50 because I was so stressed about everything. And that is probably related to uh, what I discussed before. I, I'm not great with um, stressful situations like exams and that sort of thing. I think just having, if you can, that good support system, like great friends I have both in science and outside of science. My partner doesn't work in science, which I think is really healthy. My family's always been really supportive as well. So They are the ones that sort of hold me up and keep me going. Do you have other things that you do? Do you still ride horses or do you have play a sport or make music or have a kind of movie that you love? 
I do have some hobbies, but uh, I'm not a serious horse rider anymore. I do play netball and I really love reading fantasy books. So I'm quite a fan of long fantasy series and have read quite a few of those. Like what? Recently, I finished the Mistborn trilogy, also read Wheel of Time, which was a huge undertaking, The Sword of Truth, The King Killer Chronicles, which aren't finished yet, but I'm awaiting that final book as well. I'm pretty into the the fantasy and the magic and all of that. I think it gets me out of my head as well. When you're dealing with science every day, you are reading a lot and all the time and reading all the new research that's coming out. So I really like to almost escape into another world <laughs> when I can. Scarlett, thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been great. Thank you so much for having me. It's always fantastic to share science with everyone. This is Jill Riddell, and I hope this conversation with Scarlett Howard and our interlude with Farouk Khan gives you a new appreciation for both bees and for the power of nothingness of zero. The Shape of the World is about nature, cities, and people, and the world we share. It's a production of the Office of Modern Composition, a business that creates compositions and fosters composers. If you have a story to tell, the Office of Modern Composition can help. They can go all DIY and teach you how to write and produce a story yourself, or they'll do the whole thing for you. Either way, you can end up with a permanent archival piece that presents your ideas and experiences. The Shape of the World is produced in the vital, vigorous, and beautiful metropolis of Chicago in the prairie state of Illinois. The Shape of the World is a completely carbon neutral endeavor, thanks to reductions that we made and from a carbon offset purchased from Tradewater. If you're interested in eliminating your carbon footprint, go to the website tradewater.us. You can find Shape of the World on Instagram and on the website shapeoftheworldshow.com. There you'll find out more about Scarlett Howard's work and a drawing of Scarlett by the artist Nicole Vigil, and much more. The Shape of the World's audio producer is Andy Bosnick. The theme music is composed and performed by Brad Wood. We had additional music by Joe Adamick. Thank you to our guests, to Farouk Khan and to Scarlett Howard for being on the show. And thank you both to the University of Chicago Laboratory Schools and to Scarlett Howard's current home at Deakin University. <laughs>